welcome to the Blue Skies Political Podcast. My name is Aaron O'Toole, the Member of Parliament for Durham, and I'm very fortunate to have a, a good friend here today that I've met through the political churn here in Ottawa. Michael Spratt, welcome to the program. Thanks so much for having me. Now, tell us a bit about yourself, Michael. Like, people might be shocked in Ottawa that I consider a prominent NDP lawyer a friend, uh, but we're both Dow grads. Tell me a bit about your background and, and the firm and you practice in and your podcast. Yeah, so I'm a criminal lawyer. I've been practicing for about 12 years now, 13 years. I keep on losing track of time. Uh, I keep getting older, I guess. That's the nature of time, right? And a busier practice and a life with a family. Exactly. So uh, I do fully criminal law, only criminal law, lots of heavy trial work, complex cases, murders, but a bit of everything. I like to do a lot of legal aid work as well as a way to sort of give back in sort of a pro bono way and, and things like that. Um, so primarily that's what I do. But um, we know each other from law school as well. Um, you were uh, a year senior to me at Dalhousie, which was great. Um, and also at Dalhousie, I met my spouse, Emily Tamman, who is a very prominent lawyer herself. She was named one of the top 25 uh, most influential lawyers in Canada last year. She's been a Supreme Court clerk. She's um, worked for the federal government as a federal prosecutor, uh, a law professor, and um, she's now running for the NDP in Ottawa Centre. Um, this will be her third election that she, she's run in in the last four years yeah. um, because there's a by-election sort of in the middle of uh, 2015 to now. So I'm also a prominent campaign widow. <laughs> yeah, you guys are the power couple uh, in, in Ottawa here in terms of uh, the legal practice politics. Uh, Emily's running again for the NDP. Um, but also, besides raising great kids, you guys also co-host a podcast called The Docket. Tell us a bit about The Docket. Yeah, that's right. So uh, our podcast is called The Docket. Um, you can find it on iTunes and sort of all of those podcasting places. Um, primarily, it's a legal and political podcast. We like to take sort of the complex legal issues that come from the Supreme Court or that are raised in the uh, House of Commons and in, in sort of the parliamentary and political world. And we like to explain it for a lay audience. We sort of think that we're talking to our friend down the street, our parents, someone who hasn't gone to law school. And we like to put these really complex ideas into practical, easy to digest terms. Lately, we've been talking a little less about law and a little bit more about politics. <laughs> we've been finding a hard time finding a work-life political scandal balance over the last little <laughs> while. The liberals are giving you so much material. One thing I will say, this is a crossover where I have one of the principals from the docket appearing on Blue Skies. But Blue Skies, or Aaron O'Toole MP, appeared on an episode of the docket where I think Canadians should know we can disagree with things like the, the, the payment to Omar Cotter, but you and I had and Emily had a very good discussion of that case a year and a half ago now. Yeah, it was, it was a, I mean, we do disagree on, on the Cotter case and on, you know, some of the principles involved in that case. But what I found more and more over the last couple of years and primarily, I mean, Emily is the more moderate one in our podcasting uh, family. Um, and so I've taken a lead from her in sort of looking at things. And when you look just at sort of punditry, when you look at what's happening on Twitter, there can often be sort of a polarization mm -hmm. um, where people retreat into their different silos. And, you know, when you're limited by time and character counts, um, I think positions can become sort of ossified and, and maybe more extreme than they would be. 
And I think that when Emily and I were following some of your criticism about the Cotter case, um, we it sort of left like a bit of a bad taste because I was like, I don't know. I know Aaron. I, we've disagreed in the past, but we seem really far apart on this and disagreeing about fundamental things. And then when we had you on the podcast, lo and behold, we still disagreed with each other. But I think there was a lot more agreement on some of the basic primary facts. And the disagreement um, wasn't about sort of the objective sort of facts, but more on interpretations and some fundamental principles. And it was a reasonable disagreement instead of an unreasonable disagreement. Absolutely. And I think, you know, Ottawa sadly needs more debate in this town, a respectful, informed debate. And I think you understood more where I was coming from in terms of extra picosa and things like that related to that case. But more importantly, as you said, we are becoming so siloed, uh, largely due to social media. I've been writing a bit about this calling it pierce the bubble, you know, listen and follow people that you don't necessarily agree with and you'll understand their position uh, more regularly. So we've been we've been good to show that can be done um, from NDP, conservative, cross the spectrum and, and meet and have a good discussion. But today we're doing the crossover on the Blue Skies podcast because one thing that historically has always united the NDP and the conservatives is sometimes concern about how the liberals operate and govern the country. And so today, the crossover between the docket and Blue Skies is going to be uh, on the SNC-Lavalin affair. And this centers around deferred prosecution agreements, remediation agreements uh, for SNC-Lavalin in this case. You've written a Canadian lawyer. You guys have done some docket podcasts. For my audience, distill a deferred prosecution agreement down into understandable terms. So the basic foundation of a deferred prosecution agreement is something that is sort of new in many jurisdictions. These agreements have only been around in the UK for a handful of years and only around in the States for, you know, really only a decade or two. And they haven't been used that much. And it was sort of done on an informal basis before we had legislation in Canada. And basically what a deferred prosecution agreement says is that if there is a corporate entity that's accused of wrongdoing, um, there's a few different ways you can deal with that. You can prosecute the the directors and the CEOs individually, but you can also prosecute the corporation and you can impose fines and there can be consequences for bidding on future contracts and sort of what uh, what sort of financial uh, engagements that corporation can uh, can partake in after a conviction. A conviction for a corporation is sometimes not always the best thing. Um, corporations are, are, of course, controlled by people. And so if you have a corporation that's been a bad actor, but they have since made changes, they've acknowledged wrongdoing, they've replaced sort of those bad apples who are, who are leading the wagon, and they have put procedures into place to make sure that no bad actions ever happen again. And most importantly, they come to the table and they admit their responsibility. A deferred prosecution agreement allows for a deferral of criminal charges. Um, to put it in, in sort of the bluntest terms, a, uh, a, a dropping of charges in exchange for monitoring, compliance, fines. And that allows, um, the corporation to continue doing, uh, the work that it does. It, it obviously, uh, allows the employees and the structure to continue. Um, at the same time, there's real consequences for yeah. the corporation. So it's sort of like a plea deal where the corporation can escape a criminal finding uh, of guilt 
in exchange for um, compliance and a number of other measures, assuming they meet, you know, robust preconditions uh, and assuming that the agreement is appropriate in the first place. So you mentioned it's a new tool. I know there's a few other jurisdictions like the United Kingdom that use them, but they are new and it appears from records of lobbying uh, going back to the fourth month of the Trudeau government when SNC first started meeting with the Liberal government on this and then of course, subsequent dozens of meetings with PMO officials and others. Um, deferred prosecution or rem they're a type of remediation agreement kind of didn't get much coverage when they were introduced. They were snuck into the Budget Implementation Act, Bill C-74, the, the dreaded omnibus approach to legislation. Do you have a cons some concerns with the fact that a major reform for justice was kind of snuck into a, a finance a budget implementation bill? Yeah, it's a really unusual way to do things. And of course, very off-brand for what this government promised back in 2015. No omnibus legislation, robust consultations, um, you know, committees that actually can study things on an evidence-based uh, manner to make appropriate changes that aren't controlled by the PMO or, or by higher-ups in, in the party. There are huge concerns because what we know is that before this, uh, the deferred prosecution agreement was slipped into this omnibus bill, as you said, there was massive lobbying. Um, SNC lobbied everybody in the government um, on justice and law enforcement issues. And so alarm bells should be going off when they're lobbying people like Catherine McKenna, the minister of, of the environment, on criminal justice issues. Um, so I guess we can infer that because of this lobbying, the DPA, the Deferred Prosecution Agreement, was moved forward by the government, but it didn't go to be studied at Justice Committee. It uh, wasn't the subject of expert testimony um, before uh, any parliamentary committees at the House level. Um, we didn't hear from proponents who could examine the benefits of the laws or academics who might criticize or point out improvements that could be made in the law. It was instead slipped into this omnibus bill. It was before the Finance Committee. And the shocking part is that even liberal members of the Finance Committee didn't know it was there. And of course, it's a budget um, uh, implementation bill, which is fast-tracked and moved pretty quickly yeah. through the legislative process. Yeah, it's it's interesting. You know, my colleagues, Pierre Polyev and, and Dan Albus, did raise it within finance, within the context of 800 pages of uh, a range of budget items. And you're right, there's the famous exchange now where I think both Greg Fergus, uh, a great MP, nice nice guy and uh, from, from Hull, and the chair, both liberal, Wayne Easter, uh, basically expressed shock with the provision in there. So the chair of the Finance Committee, uh, one of their lead MPs on the committee, both shocked that it was even there. So as you said, there was no um, consultation. There were no lead proponents there to sort of support it. It was it was a surprise to even the Liberals on the committee. It was a surprise to everyone. I remember I wrote about it for Canadian Lawyer back, I think, in, in May or something like that. And it really didn't get any study, even at that point. I mean, I look at legislation. I testify before these committees all the time. I look at all criminal justice legislation, and I miss this one. I was even surprised about it. I mean, that's how sort of shocking it was that a I, I only do criminal law. I read every single piece of criminal legislation, and this one I missed until it was pointed out later. Um, and it really didn't receive any study until it got to the Senate. Um, which I think we've been seeing more and more that the Senate has been picking up some slack. 
And there have been some some good work done in the Senate. And I'll say this specifically by some conservative senators who I've clashed swords with in the past, who have pointed out constitutional issues, not only with this bill, um, but with a number of other pieces of, of criminal justice legislation. Yeah. So so it, it passed and received royal assent in June of 2018. And what I've been talking about a lot uh, lately, and I put out a bit of a tweet thread on this and I've spoken about it in some of my town halls and public engagements, is if you actually track from the time when the bill was passed, so Bill C-74 was passed in June, and the coming into force for the remediation part for the DPA, the Deferred Prosecution Agreement, was 90 days after passage of the bill, you would be able to use these remediation agreements for the first time. And if you track the 90 days, that took you to about September 19th. That would be the first time the Director of Public Prosecutions could actually use this new tool that was kind of snuck in. And when Jody Wilson-Raybould testified and told the country about the September 17th meeting that she had with Prime Minister Trudeau and with the Privy Council clerk, uh, Mr. Wernick, they started the pressuring of Jody Wilson-Raybould the Prime Minister mentioning the politics and elections in Quebec, uh, Mr. Wernick mentioning the, the company's interests two days before the agreements were even permitted. Um, what was what was your impression from that fact, but also Miss Wilson-Raybould's overall testimony? Well, the timeline here, I think, can lead to some pretty damning inferences about how things went down. You have this incredible lobbying that went on before... Uh, this, this was snuck into the omnibus bill. Um, and then even before it becomes law, you have more discussions about it. So the inference is that perhaps SNC's lobbying led to this provision being put into the omnibus bill. And then, of course, applied to SNC even before it became law. And I think that one thing that we should all be able to agree on, no matter what political party you're from or, or where you fall in the spectrum is that important matters of criminal law and public law and, and legislation shouldn't be driven solely by backroom lobbying from large corporations. I mean, this is another promise that was broken in 2015. We're going to have less lobbying. We're going to focus on the middle class and not on corporations and another thing that's broken. But this is all sort of leads to, I think, a damning conclusion that this is something that the government wanted. This is something that they wanted uh, applied to SNC. They wanted this corporation to take advantage of this new agreement. And the amount of lobbying and the coordination and pressure that went in to, uh, that went on to, uh, to former minister, uh, Wilson Raybould is, uh, it's mind boggling. It is mind boggling. And, you know, I think that's what people found stunning from her testimony was not only from September 17th, Onward, but throughout the fall, a coordinated and persistent effort from the Prime Minister's office, from the Clerk of the Privy Council uh, himself, to have her change her position. In fact, at, at times, Mr. Wernick mentioning um, the board meetings coming up for SNC-Lavalin and elections, the Prime Minister mentioning, just totally uh, across the line. Canadians may not know what the Shawcross Doctrine means, but the Attorney General should not be politically pressured to make a decision, including to to ask her Director of Public Prosecutions to, to bring forward one of these agreements. 
Without us getting into too much of the shock, Ross, you've done that well in some of your writing. This was totally over the line by by any look at it. Would that be fair to say? I think so. I mean, if you take a look at, at Wilson-Raybould's evidence, it was clearly over the line. It was a coordinated campaign of pressure. You know, the uh, Wernick, the, the Privy Council clerk, would talk to SNC, then would talk to Wilson-Raybould, then Wilson-Raybould would talk to the Prime Minister, then Wernick would go back to Wilson-Raybould, then go back to SNC. All of this is is very troubling. The most troubling part is that there was political considerations. I mean, Justin Trudeau is saying, you know, I'm not just the prime minister, but I am the the member from Papineau mm-hmm. um, talking about Quebec elections, um, saying things like we can have the best policies in the world, but if we don't get reelected, it's not going to matter. Yeah. That's clearly over the line. But even if you disregard uh, Jody Wilson-Raybould's evidence, and you just look at the evidence of Michael Wernick, Jerry Butts, and what Trudeau has said over dribs and drabs over the last few weeks, that is still shocking and over the line. Because at the end of the day, this is about the rule of law. We don't want our law to be applied or our prosecutors to make decisions based on political pressure. And I mean, if you use the counterfactual, how would people feel if someone from the PMO went to the attorney general and said, I want you to prosecute this Mm -hmm. person. I want you to lay charges against this person. And then how would you feel if I want you to lay charges against this person because it would be an advantage politically to us? That would be shocking to anyone. And the reverse is true, saying I want you to cut deals. I mean, that is a shocking undermining of an important uh, democratic pillar, and that is the rule of law. Absolutely. And we're two lawyers talking about this here. Uh, I've also been in cabinet and uh, never did I have the pre- clerk of the Privy Council um, pressure me. I had legislation, I had budget, I had lawsuits, I was settling. It was always through cabinet, through prime minister. The, the clerk would attend cabinet, but never have these sort of one-offs. It's quite unusual in my books. But people will call this, you know, you hear a lot of things, obstruction, you hear all these things. What's done was ethically wrong, but crossing the line and pressuring the attorney general is that illegal? Is that immoral? Is that unethical? Is it a constitutional concern because it's crossing over between the judiciary and the executive branch of, of government? What are your thoughts on that wider issue? Because you hear a lot of concern. It, it's more unethical, immoral type conduct as opposed to illegal. But or what are your thoughts? I think it, it definitely approaches the line of illegality. And I know um, Andrew Scheer has called for an RCMP investigation, mentioning intimidation and obstruction of justice. That's a very high bar to cross. And I don't think we're there. Um, I don't think that any court would be able to find, based on the evidence that we know now, that Justin Trudeau um, did what he did to obstruct justice. Um, there's an important intent element there that's very hard to prove. But I think that, and that's, I mean, that's sort of a talking point that we've heard from the liberals that, I mean, it's not criminal. The point is, we don't want the line of propriety in politics to be criminality. That's right. Um, and that's exactly what the liberals were saying when um, the Duffy affair was an issue. Um, just because something isn't criminal doesn't mean that it's moral, ethical, and correct. And we should expect better than you know, just the other side of the line of criminality from our politicians. Are there con- constitutional issues here, though, with when the rule of law comes into place and we have, um, you know, Supreme Court Act, we have the judiciary, 
and we have parliament, including the executive function. Do you have constitutional concerns with how they were operating? Yeah, I think so, especially when our democracy depends on, you know, the executive, the the legislative and the judiciary. These are all important pillars of our democratic process. Mm -hmm. And when you have monkeying around from between the two, between the two um, this undermines sort of the rule of law. It um, is involved in sort of the discretion of prosecutions. Because at the end of the day, putting it in the plainest, simplest terms, we have a good prosecution service. They make great decisions based on good evidence. Um, and we need to trust our prosecutors, just like we need to trust our judges. And when you have politicians um, pulling strings, maybe because large corporations or special interest group are pulling levers behind scenes, that can lead to, you know, a house of cards of a shaky foundation. And it's when our institutions like that are um, eroded and the confidence in those institutions break down, that's when we have real problems going forward. Maybe Justin Trudeau and his office are watching too much House of Cards. Um, I, I joke. We've only got a couple more minutes. Um, today, we're filming this on Budget Day. Uh, I've just learned that the Liberals shut down the Justice Committee and they're not allowing Ms. Wilson-Raybould to return. Um, she clearly wanted to return. She clearly feels she's bound um, very tightly by solicitor-client privilege. Um, let's talk about, you know, what the Liberals are doing at committee and how they're preventing her from talking. How can you really get a real sense of what happened if we, too, don't allow her to address issues brought up by Mr. Butts and Mr. Wernick? But, two, the Prime Minister set very tight gates on the time and what she could discuss. Um any thoughts on why they did that and why they just wouldn't waive privilege entirely? Give me your thoughts on, on their conduct and the privilege issues. Well, I mean, it's it's an interesting timeline here, right? Because the Justice Committee, first, they didn't want to hear from uh, from Jody Wilson-Raybould at all. And then they did, and there was this partial waiver. I think the real problem is, is if uh, Jody Wilson-Raybould was shuffled out of the justice portfolio because of SNC because she wouldn't do what the government, what the prime minister's office wanted her to do, then that might be a very damning piece of evidence that could lead to a stronger conclusion that there was obstruction going on. Um, because, you know, that is a consequence directly tied yes. to, to her exercise of her independent authority. That's very problematic. The larger problem here is that if this was a court process, everyone would be lighting their hair on fire because it's unfair. The rules are fluid and um, someone with a direct interest, the liberals who control the justice committee. And I'm sorry, I don't believe the liberals when they say, no, 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 the PMO is hands off. We're making independent decisions. There's yeah. no string pulling here. When you have sort of a, a party to, to the litigation involved in setting the rules of that litigation, it's an unfair process. It won't get at the truth. So this would never fly in, in a courtroom. Um, clearly, even leaving aside the privilege issues, um, Jody Wilson-Raybould should be allowed to respond to what Gerald Butts and Michael Wernick uh, said. Wernick got to respond to, to Wilson-Raybould. Why can't she respond yeah. to him? And of course, we're not hearing from everyone else whose names are attached. Why aren't we hearing from um, from staff at the PMO office or from Bill, Bill Marno's office, from Ben Chin, his office, or from Jessica Prince? These are people who had direct 
firsthand conversations who were contradicted by Gerald Butts, um, who seemed to be supported by some of what the prime minister says, um, and were relying on hearsay and third-hand accounts of these conversations. Why don't we hear from those primary witnesses? They clearly have relevant information to give. It makes no sense that we would hear from some individuals and not all individuals. And if we don't do it at the Justice Committee, we're not going to know. I mean, there's an ethics committee in, or an ethics investigation, but the mandate is limited. The timelines are elongated and we might not have any information or a report before the public goes to the polls to vote, mm-hmm. which, and this could be an important issue. So, but for what we've heard of the Justice Committee, this would all be buried, and the rest of it is going to be buried, because it looks like the Justice Committee isn't interested in hearing from any other witnesses. So, they're burying it, preventing her from testifying. They've even shut down the Justice Committee today, uh, the Liberal MPs did. I, I said their letter kind of read as if it was uh, a hostage letter uh, written at the urging of their, their captors in the PMO. It, it really is clear that they're limiting uh, discussion. We're calling it a cover-up because they don't actually want the full case to come out to Canadians. Should this entire episode lead to an erosion of, of trust uh, in Mr. Trudeau and the inner circle around him? I think so. And I mean, you can have disagreements about where the line is. You can have disagreements about how far or if the PMO and, and the government crossed the line. One of the strategies that we're seeing from the Liberals is blurring the line is uh, making it fuzzy. And if you blur a line enough, you can't tell where it begins or ends. So reasonable people can, I think, can disagree. And I think that it's fair to say that even good people can make wrong choices for maybe reasons they thought were right at the time. I think maybe for moralistic and and self-righteous, it might be easier to fall into that trap. But good people can make bad decisions. But I think what's really damaging is that this is a government who said, we'll be different that we're going to open up the PMO's office to access to information requests, <laughs> that we're not going to have omnibus legislation, that we're going to allow committees to do their work, that we're interested in fairness, that we're going to stop backroom lobbying and look at middle classes and not large corporations, um, that we're going to be fair, that we're going to be different. And all of this shows, even if you're on the side that says they didn't cross the line, all of this shows that all of those words back in 2015 were just words and they didn't mean any of it. Empties, empty Sunny Ways slogans. I think that's probably the best way to leave off. So listen, Michael, I really appreciate you appearing on Blue Skies. I'd urge people to, to listen to the Docket podcast as well if you're interested in uh, legal and, and political issues. It's good for Canadians, Tories, NDP, and others to hear the other side, Audi Alterum Partum, as we say in law. But thank you very much for appearing. Thanks for having me. 